Welcome to the MRC Talks podcast. I'm Isabel Harding. In our 2019 Career Inspiration series, we're bringing you stories from 12 inspiring scientists who are working to improve lives through medical research. Each month, we talk to a different scientist to find out how they got there and what makes them tick. This month, I talked to Nita Faruhi. She's a professor of population health and nutrition and a programme leader from the MRC Epidemiology Unit at the University of Cambridge. Believe in yourself, work hard and surround yourself with people who you can talk to, who can be good peer mentors for you. Um, Keep your eye on the ball. Don't give up. Nita looks at something that affects us all but is notoriously hard to study, the food we eat and how it affects our health. From a very young age, she knew she wanted to be a doctor. But while treating patients with diabetes as a junior doctor, she realised this wasn't enough. She wanted to solve the puzzle of what causes diabetes and how to prevent it from happening in the first place. Nita thrives on challenging herself. At the age of just 14 years old, she left India to come and study in the UK and train as a doctor. She now leads an international research programme studying the impact of food and nutrition on our bodies. Some of her research has tackled the most pressing and challenging issues in this area, the role of sugars, fats and different foods on our health. In her words, everyone feels they're an expert on nutrition. There are all sorts of books and blogs and programmes made on it. So I think taking it back to evidence and good solid research is very important. By studying the diets and biology of hundreds of thousands of people, she and her team, together with collaborators in other countries, showed that regularly drinking just one sugary drink a day can increase your risk of diabetes. Thanks to her passion for communicating her science, her research was part of efforts leading to the 2016 government tax on soft drinks. This tax encourages companies to cut the amount of sugar in drinks to help tackle childhood obesity and diabetes. Nita balances her research and teaching with writing and reviewing papers and grant applications. She also gives regular media interviews to tell the public about responsible and evidence-based nutrition research. And as a woman from an ethnic minority in science, she's a passionate champion for equality, diversity and inclusion. By working with committees and individuals, she promotes best practice in the workplace to secure the right systems and training to support others. How do you describe your research to your friends and family? Well, I usually describe what I do as food matters to us all and food matters both to the individual and to society as a whole because so much of our chronic disease, like diabetes and heart disease, um, rests upon... um, lifestyle uh, behavioral factors such as dietary factors so I tell my friends and family and and colleagues that what I study is the link between diet nutrition food intake and the risk of uh, serious illnesses and what to do about their prevention. Can you briefly describe your career journey so far how you got to this place? I left India at the age of 14 and For as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a doctor from very young on, uh, from a very young age. And when I arrived in the UK as a first-generation immigrant, uh, because I did not come with my parents, I came here to study, um, I 
found the schooling and the whole culture a very novel experience, but I kept that ambition all throughout, that I wanted to aim for picking up the science subjects as I did my O-levels and A-levels. Uh, and then I went to medical school uh, in Newcastle. Uh, and then I trained as a junior doctor, but uh, while doing the medical training, I was interested in taking one year out to do an intercalated degree, uh, a bachelor's degree, a BMED Sci. And uh, for that, I challenged myself by taking a topic that I was really rubbish at, because I felt that if I chose something that challenged me, uh, it would get me to really get to grips with it. So I chose uh, an intercalated degree in immunology, and I was absolutely delighted when I got a first-class honours for it. Congratulations. Thank you. So that really boosted my confidence that uh, I could be perhaps interested in research in the future. But then I went through my NHS training and uh, was working as a junior doctor in Newcastle and Edinburgh. Um, and, you know, working in the NHS is all-consuming. It keeps you very busy. But at one point, I basically decided I wanted to get back to that uh, love that I had developed for research when I was doing my intercalated degree. So I looked for opportunities, and I found a welcome training fellowship was advertised uh, at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Uh, so I applied for that, and um, I was, again, delighted that the Wellcome Trust um, gave me that fellowship, a four-year fellowship, to do a master's and a PhD in clinical epidemiology. And that's where my love for looking at populations as a whole uh, really took a shape of its own. Uh, and that then led me to also uh, train in public health. So when I chose my clinical specialty after doing the PhD, I decided to train in public health. Um, and then really the MRC epidemiology unit was a shining beacon of um, the place to be at for the areas that I was interested in, which was population health and uh, the clinical condition of diabetes, obesity and related metabolic disorders. So um, I got in touch uh, with Professor Nick Wareham, uh, sent him a copy of my CV and asked if we could meet up and here I am. Uh, and then once I started at the MRC Epidemiology Unit, um, I started at a sort of senior postdoctoral level and then worked my way up through the different grades of the MRC career progression, uh, becoming an investigator scientist uh, and then senior investigator scientist, then a program leader track and then program leader. Wow, so a long and varied path so far. Um, so you say that you trained as a doctor before getting into research. You wanted to be a doctor from a, a very early age. Um, what drew you to the research element, do you think? When I was practicing as a clinician, uh, seeing patients in the diabetes clinics, I used to get very downhearted because every patient I saw, I felt for a proportion as a junior doctor, I could advise them or give them medication uh, and their control of diabetes would be reasonably good, but ultimately, for most people, it would still deteriorate. And for a lot of people, I felt very frustrated that uh, 
we were just handing out medications basically. So I wanted to really try and understand how medical research happens and how one tries to understand why disease happens and then what to do about its prevention. So for me, being a clinician wasn't enough. I really wanted to understand how to do medical research, which is why I looked for opportunities to go and train in the research method. And my PhD was all very hands-on about uh, trying to understand the reasons why people get diabetes and heart disease. So your work focuses on how our diet affects our health and how that then can be um, increase our risk of getting diseases like obesity and diabetes, like you mentioned. What's your most surprising finding to date? Uh, I'm thinking about what the most surprising finding is. Um, th there have been so many uh, bits of research that we have done. The, bit, the, the part that I found most exciting is to follow through on the research, not just publish a paper and think, right, that job is done and now I'll move on to a different topic. So um, typically when we ask people about their dietary habits, we rely on them telling us about their uh, eating, uh, what they've done in the last year or so typically, habitually. And that, as you can imagine, is very limited. So from that, you can get very counterintuitive or surprising findings where you end up reporting that uh, having a higher sugar intake perhaps isn't related to uh, obesity or a higher energy intake, calorie intake, is not related to putting on weight. And uh, then you have to follow through on that story and work out, well, why might it be? Because intuition and also kind of hypothesis generation tells you that if you have more calories and don't spend them, then you should be putting on weight. So it's then trying to work out, sort of solve that puzzle and thinking how can we assess diet better? Because the reason that might be happening, that example I've just given you, is because people consciously or subconsciously may under-report what they're eating, so that would account for it. And so they don't do that on purpose, they do that maybe because they forget or just because they're not thinking about it? So people absolutely forget. I myself forget what I've eaten last week, let alone what I on average habitually eat over the past 12 months or so. So both consciously but particularly subconsciously, people either under-report, over-report, misreport, can't remember. So it's actually a bit like solving a jigsaw puzzle as to try and work that out. So we try and apply different ways of assessing diet in terms of asking people, but also we uh, can apply objective measurements where we might take a urine sample or a blood sample and try and measure biomarkers. So you can use those things. to extrapolate as, an, as a, like a signal in your body to give you an idea of what someone eats. Absolutely. So it's a little bit like, if I may draw the analogy, when we ask people about their physical activity, how much people exercise, how active they are, that has very similar problems of people may think that they're being more active typically than they usually are. Some might underreport, but mostly people would think, yeah, I'm being good, I'm being physically active. So with that, the objective assessment would be to have either a step counter or an accelerometer. And these days, everyone's walking around with Fitbits and all sorts. So if you like, it's the equivalent of that for assessing diet. And we've done that. And it's been really, really exciting to uh, measure 
dietary intakes and, and, and nutritional status measuring blood biomarkers. So to give us an idea of what it's like to work in your shoes, what does your typical working day look like? My typical working day is usually very rushed and uh, very dynamic and I'm uh, quite a busy bee who flits around from uh, one project meeting to a PhD supervision to a research management meeting or I might be preparing uh, a talk because I have uh, an invitation to give a talk at an international conference or a national conference or I might be preparing to teach students on the MPhil uh, in epidemiology and the MPhil which is a master's degree uh, in epidemiology at the University of Cambridge. Um, I could be approached by the BBC or another section of the media uh, for a comment on somebody, other, some other research group's uh, findings. That research could be from America or from Europe or from Asia or from the UK. It could be from anywhere. So you have to just very rapidly assimilate what they have published and give your commentary on it. Uh, it could also be a media interview because of our own research uh, that takes uh, people's imagination or, or, or strikes a, an interest in uh, amongst the media. So you're supporting other scientists as well as feeding into the, res- the ongoing research that's happening as well as communicating the results of that research to the wider world. Do you think that's important? I think it's really important to engage and uh, do public engagement, both from our research studies, where the volunteers who took part in the study, we feedback the results of the studies to them and tell them how their contribution of time is helping build a really solid foundation for understanding disease and, and what promotes uh, disease. And the other form is to, to engage uh, with uh, the, the media and also with policymakers and public health personnel to get the messages out and not just sit within a research publication. And what was really, really uh, very rewarding for all of us in uh, my team in the Nutritional uh, Epidemiology Group is that for these efforts of uh, engaging with public impact uh, of research, we in 2016 won the inaugural um, uh, award for the Vice Chancellor's Award at Cambridge University for Public Impact of Research. That's brilliant. So, yeah. recognizing for you, recognizing you for your efforts of doing this this public engagement and the, the fact that it is important. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Is there anything or anyone that inspires you to do your job? I have constantly been inspired by my students, my postdoctoral fellows, uh, my peers and my senior colleagues um, in all my scientific endeavours because no one can really do research alone Uh, and you need good teams of people and you need good colleagues and I've been very fortunate to have those. Um, I got into the area of nutritional epidemiology in the first place because uh, my senior colleague, uh, Professor Nick Wareham, when he and I were chatting about what sort of research portfolio I might build when I uh, first started here, uh, he said, well, for physical activity, quite a lot has been done and progress is being made, but the whole landscape of research for dietary research in the UK is still quite far behind, and that that might be an exciting area to get into. So I was very grateful to him for that. 
um, because initially I felt I may not have credibility in the field because I hadn't really trained in nutrition directly. But, um, you know, when you take something seriously and you put hard work and effort into it and you're surrounded by colleagues who are supportive, then you can turn it around and make a success of it. Brilliant. It sounds like a really exciting and vibrant field for you. And you've, you've built this up from, like you say, coming in from a different field and then becoming a specialist and giving expert advice and dis, um, assimilating evidence from other papers as well. So it sounds like very varied, um, very exciting, <laughs> lots going on. Yes. Um, what do you think is the best career decision that you've made to date? Well, I guess I've made lots of good and bad career decisions over time, but the one that stands out as really the right one and, and a good one is to have embarked on that Welcome Fellowship uh, where I did the Master's and the PhD uh, to learn about how to do medical research and how to do population health research that basically opened up huge new horizons for me and I think that's why I'm here today because I did that. Can you describe your proudest moment? I think there have been so many things to celebrate over the length of my career so far. Um, A couple that stand out are when in 2016 our research uh, was considered uh, the best in terms of um, population impact and public impact of research uh, in the inaugural University of Cambridge Vice-Chancellor's Awards for Impact. Um, And also I was delighted in 2017 to have been appointed um, uh, a professor in population health and nutrition. It's been a long journey to get to that. Brilliant. Well, well done. Well done for that. I mean, it's a brilliant achievement. Um, You've talked a bit about the the challenges in the field, um, but what do you think um, has been the biggest challenge in your research so far? Nutritional epidemiology is a field that in many circles is not taken very seriously. So there's a perception out there sometimes, and sometimes even amongst uh, other researchers who don't know this field, that it's a soft science, that you can't really take it very seriously because uh, somehow the hierarchy of evidence, which at the top of it as the gold standard has the randomized clinical trial or randomized control trial, in this field, in nutritional epidemiology, uh, that's a challenge to do because uh, people won't stick to diets for years and years on end while you study them. So we have to use alternative methods to reach inferences and to try and get at whether X is really uh, a cause of Y. For instance, you know, this food really causes that disease, not just a correlation. So the field is uh, pretty hard and uh, there's a lot of scepticism about the field and a lot of people feel that they know everything about nutrition themselves. So it's quite difficult and challenging to to do uh, sometimes uh, get messages across that, that people will take seriously. But I equally feel it's very, very important, therefore all the more, to do very good research, to replicate your findings and to um, collaborate and do findings in large samples in diverse populations and if you get very similar findings in different settings then you can be so much more confident that your findings are for real. So there are ways of getting around those challenges. 
If you could go back and talk to your younger self at the start of your career, what advice would you give them? If I look back when I was younger, and you know, when you're younger, you can be inconfident, you can feel, uh, you know, that that things are all too difficult. Uh, so, to my younger self, I would say, believe in yourself, uh, work hard, and surround yourself with people who you can talk to, who can be good peer mentors for you, uh, and have other mentors, and um, keep your eye on the ball and keep working towards it. So don't give up. Because there could have been so many stages at which I could have given up. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we know that, for instance, women in science or people of color in science, these are all um, challenges. Um, and you've got to have your inner resilience, but also you've got to have systems in place uh, so that it's not just up to the individual to keep going. And it's been fantastic that over the, uh, my career alone, uh, so many good systems have come into place. Um, for instance, the Athena Swan Charter, which promotes um, gender equality, is one example uh, of uh, trying to help women in the sciences, in the STEM subjects. Um, this brings us on nicely to your role as an equality champion for the University of Cambridge. So can you talk a bit more about that? Yes, so uh, equality, diversity and inclusion are very close to my heart and uh, I was delighted to be offered the opportunity to be the equality lead for the MRC Epidemiology Unit and for the clinical school at the uh, University of Cambridge. So I embraced that and have been very active and proactive in uh, uh, working with the Athena Swan uh, Gender Equality Charter from the Equality Challenges Unit. And I sit on the uh, Athena Swan Governance Group at the clinical school. And I'm also the clinical school's equality champion. Wow, that's a lot of roles there for you. Yes, so a lot of roles in equality. Um, and so I sit on the university level Gender Equality Steering Committee and also the Race Equality Charter self-assessment team. And we're doing lots of very, very interesting and important work. And there are so many good things going on at the University of Cambridge and at the MRC Epidemiology Unit in uh, good practice throughout the professional journey, whether it be a, a fair practice in recruitment and in progression, career progression, and opportunities given to all. So um, this is really important work and I'm delighted that, that I'm part of it. It takes time, it takes you away from uh, you know, your day job in terms of the scientific agenda, the consortia you lead and the project meetings you have, all of that. But I think it's very important work and, and I think we, we, we should all try and engage with it. And you're a role model as well to show people that it's possible that you can, you can get to this stage of your career um, and by talking about it, you are being a role model for other people. I think it's really important to try to be a good role model for those who are still on that journey uh, and to be a good colleague to your um, other colleagues uh, and, and, and people that you come across during your research career. So I think the equality agenda and, and the diversity and inclusion in the workplace is, um, is, is critical. And, um, you know, I've had some experiences which uh, could have uh, been uh, off-putting and they were off-putting. Um, you know, for instance, it still happens, but I'm more equipped to deal with it now. 
both because of my own resilience, but also because we have systems in place that we can turn to if we need to. Um, so you know, I could give you examples. Yeah, that'd if, be good. If you yeah. can give us an example of yeah, something, some 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 um, situation that you were in where you didn't, where you weren't comfortable, or where you came up against a challenge. Um, so, I'm sure everyone faces challenges in their professional life at different stages. Uh, but my own personal recent examples. Uh, are, for instance, I went to a closed group meeting by invitation in London just in the last couple of months. Uh, it was only about 40 people or so who had been handpicked to be there for a particular high-level discussion um, across a range of sectors. And uh, I was the only one from Cambridge there. And when I arrived at the uh, round table to which I was assigned, I was asked, oh, hello, are you the note taker? Uh, and that happened very recently. Another one was when somebody came into my office and I share my office with someone else and they said to me, oh, hi, are you the secretary? Uh, and this happens on and off. Uh, these are just two recent examples. But I think it's really important not to take offense. And work. we all have unconscious biases. I'm the first one to put my hand up and I know that I have implicit and unknown and unconscious biases, just like everyone else does. So I think one needs to be respectful of other people's unconscious biases and work around them. And there's so many things we can do these days. And as an equality champion, I'm very keen to promote that there are online modules one can do uh, on equality and diversity training, uh, on unconscious biases and how to recognize them. So it's great that things have moved on. Um, and, you know, when I was doing my PhD and uh, I took time out to have um, two children, uh, at that point, that was another point at which I could have been part of this so-called leaky pipeline where women in particular, because of family raising reasons, uh, may not return to a science career. And that could have been me. Um, but, and you know, in, in those days when I did my PhD, the systems were not as robust as they're now. You know, now we've made progress. We have paternity leave. We have really good provision for good maternity leave and for annual leave when, when you come back, for flexible working. All of these um, are huge improvements that, that are taking place now. Thinking back um, to your career, um, but looking forward, where do you see yourself in, say, five years' time? There's so much more yet to do. Uh, we have published some very exciting research findings. We've had a lot of uh, impact uh, in, in terms of research impact. We've engaged with the public and through the media, but there's more to do because some of the things in this space of diet and health are still very confusing and there are lots of um, mixed messages and the public are left confused or... Uh, scientists in, in different settings may question guidelines that have come from government institutions and so on. So there's a lot still to be done and we want to be at the forefront of those developments in this field and we have a whole lot of work still to do to describe diet better, to use objective markers of uh, foods and intake of different uh, diets by uh, using biomarkers and really I want to be ultimately in a position of being able to give advice in terms of the person individually, so-called personalized nutrition, so that somebody who is 
Asian or black or white and of a certain age, younger or older, of uh, living in a particular area versus other, they could have tailored advice based on all those things taken into account. Great. Well, thank you very much for sharing your career inspirations with us. Is there anything extra that you'd like to add? Science is exciting and it is just so broad. You can choose to go for one small topic and go into huge depth on that. And that's the sort of stuff that Nobel Prizes are made of. But also you can investigate uh, lots of different areas, experiment with certain things, particularly at a more junior stage, and then find something that excites you, that interests you, and that you will be motivated to do to the best of your ability. So don't be afraid, I would say, to uh, tailor make a career. One doesn't have to be on a roller coaster or a conveyor belt of, okay, I've trained to do this, therefore I will stick with this. Um, I have done sideways moves in my career many different times throughout my professional journey and I would recommend it. Brilliant, so bringing in that expertise from different fields you get a different outlook probably because you've got a different background and that's really important for team science presumably. Yes, I think to do good team science having a range of uh, different expertise within the group is really helpful and it's okay to try something out and if you don't flourish in it to try something else out until you find something that really excites you and stimulates you and you will be great at. So choose an area of science that works for you and that you can give back to and you can be excellent at. And this is obviously your area because you can talk so passionately about it. <laughs> so thank you very much for sharing your career inspirations with me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Look out for more about Nita's work on our blog mrc.ukri.org forward slash blog. For information about other biomedical career options, check out our map at mrc.ukri.org forward slash interactive framework. If you like what you hear, then please like, share and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your feedback via Twitter at the underscore MRC or on Facebook where MRC comms. Tune in for our next episode when we talk with Professor Fiona Watt about juggling her stem cell science with running the MRC as Executive Chair. This episode was produced and presented by Isabel Harding, also produced and edited by Hasina Sakrani. Thanks for listening.